Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and I want to thank you for joining me today. I am glad to share this time with you. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people, concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. That way you can always get access to the next episode. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. And this week is the fourth week of Advent. We're closing out our series on the four different themes of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, and now love. Next week, we'll have a Christmas Eve podcast, and yes, we will have a Christmas Day podcast, as Christmas Eve is on a Saturday and Christmas Day is on a Sunday. Both will probably be a little shorter than normal, but I want to turn our attention now to our message for this week. I want to begin with a little excerpt from the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, the Christmas Carol, right? And this is a moment when he finds his future, and he's with the, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, or future yet to come, the, the ghost of the future. And here's how the text reads. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of, ne- of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed, he cried, upon his knees, the finger pointed from the grave to him, and then back again. No, spirit. Oh, no, no. The finger was still there. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at its robe. Hear me. I'm not the man I was. I will not be the man that I must have been. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Now, as I said, that story is from a Christmas, or that excerpt is from the story A Christmas Carol. And hopefully you are familiar with the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, the tough miser, and and how the story goes that he meets with the ghosts of Christmas past and present and future, that he has seen his future, and there is no fruit produced by his life other than misery. He now sees his loneliness. He feels the burden of his miserly decisions. Scrooge has seen the error of his ways. He knows his cruelty, and he feels shame from his actions. He asks desperately, why show me this if I am past hope? Well, Scrooge is not past hope, but he feels what many of us wrestle with, the burden of sin and the burden of shame. And for much of history, Scrooge would have been right. There is not much hope. There is no final answer to sin, but Christmas changes that forever. The birth of Jesus signaled that God, in his love for us, gave his son Jesus for us to conquer sin. Over the last weeks during the Advent season, we have explored the themes of hope, peace, joy, and now finally, we look at love. We need to remember that Jesus is not just the one who brings peace. He is peace itself. Jesus is not just who we hope for. He is hope itself. And Jesus is not just a joy maker. He is joy itself. And this week, I want to talk about love. And I want to remind you that Jesus isn't just great 
a great example of love, he is love itself. Or rather, I should say, he is love himself. Once more, I want to direct your attention to the prophet Isaiah. And our text today is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Now, part of this text is quoted in the Christmas story, in the Gospel of Matthew, in his account of the birth of Jesus. And if you were to go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, you would read these words, which are found in Isaiah 7. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it's very easy to see Christmas in that verse, the Virgin Mary giving birth to the Son of God, that Jesus would be with us here on earth, fully God and fully human. The rest of the passage of Isaiah 7 has always seemed a little strange to me. At least I've always tried to read it going, well, how does this talk about Christmas? And it's a text about a relatively unknown king of Judah. His name's Ahaz. Hopefully you'll know him a lot better before our message is done today. And God offers him a sign of his choosing to inspire faithfulness from Ahaz. Ahaz refuses that offer. So God says the sign will be a boy born of a virgin. And the message doesn't feel all that Christmassy because it's weighted with judgment instead of relief. Time and time again, I have read this passage and wondered, beyond the sign of a virgin birth, what on earth does this passage have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas. Ahaz, yes, he's a Jewish king who exemplifies what happens when love fails. Ahaz fails to love his people, to love his family, and to love God. The result is that his world completely falls apart. In contrast, you have God showing us love triumphant. We know the boy, born of a virgin, we know that he's Jesus. He's the Son of God, and He's the Savior of the whole world. And I want to encourage you to hear in our text today the triumph of love. Each of us have our Ebenezer Scrooge moments when we feel like all is lost and all is hopeless. But Christmas is the beginning of the great reversal of your and my stories. I need you to hear today this truth. Love is triumphant, meaning Jesus is triumphant, overpowering our past, overcoming our present, and opening our future to victory. I need you to hear that, so I'm going to read it again to you. Love is triumphant, overpowering the past, overcoming the present, and opening the future to victory. If you're weighed down by your past, by a situation you're in right now, if you're not sure how it can lead to a good future, know that you can have victory in Christ today. So let's go to Isaiah 7, and we're going to read verses 10 through 17. You're probably going to hear that this doesn't feel all that Christmassy. That's okay. We're going to try to unpack it today to show you love triumphant as opposed to love failed in this text. So let's go to verse 10 and read the text. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. 
But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. I know, it's a bit of a strange passage. It doesn't sound a lot like Christmas, does it? And yet it has in it, in the middle of it, that promise, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, in the past, when I've ever read this text, I've always focused on the promise of God for the birth of Jesus. And I've skipped over all the Ahaz parts. I figured, yeah, I don't know very much about him. Let's let's skip that and get to the promise of Christ. But for you and me to understand and feel the full weight of this text, we need to dig a little bit into Ahaz's life. And that's what we're going to do today. And yes, a bit like Ebenezer Scrooge, we need to look at Ahaz's past. We need to look at the present moment when Isaiah chapter 7 happens. And we need to realize what his decisions do for his future. So let's begin with Ahaz's past. And by his past, I mean Ahaz's family tree, because Ahaz is a king, and his father and grandfather and many more before him go back, they go back generation after generation, all the way back to David, the family tree. And when we think of King David, there's much to admire. There's, there's a lot of good things about David, king of Israel. The Bible even describes David as a man after God's own heart. But David has his struggles, and those struggles flow through his family tree. So let's look at David for a moment. And despite all that he did that was godly and good, the power of his office got to him. He was overtaken uh, by his, well, the desire for power. And he used his power to take what was not his to take. He saw the woman, Bathsheba was her name, and he used his power to take her. He used his influence to get her. And then later he murders her husband, Uriah, uses his power to get Uriah out of the way. Pretty awful circumstances. He he abuses his power. He takes a woman uh, that he has no right to take. You can't own a person. You can't just take what you want. And, and yet he forces his will upon her, and, and he takes the life of her husband. It's not a good past. Now, David and Bathsheba, they have a son. It's named Solomon, and he becomes the next king of Israel, amazingly enough. Solomon also is overtaken by the desire for power, and he too has an eye for the ladies. The Bible records that Solomon, in all the good things that he did, also had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's a thousand women. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> I've heard the jokes, you know, but can you imagine 
keeping track of all those anniversaries, all the gifts. I mean, three anniversaries a day. I, I don't even know how that would even. It's crazy, right? I want to add this. The Bible here is not condoning having this many wives, having multiple wives at all. Instead, whenever we read cases about a guy having multiple wives, whether it's two or, in Solomon's case, a thousand, it shows the misery that results from it. It shows the sin that results from it. Solomon's heart was divided when it shouldn't have been, and you can't divide your heart among multiple spouses. His marriages, they were a pursuit of power, and that shows each marriage was formed uh, to strengthen allegiances with other nations, and his wives persuaded him to worship the gods of those nations. All of those were false gods. All of those were evil. In particular, the text about Solomon, if you read it, tells us that he worships the Ammonite god Molech. Now, Molech was a god who required child sacrifice. Now, it doesn't tell us that Solomon sacrificed to Molech, but it does tell us he worships there as a chance. Now, this, I, this piece of information about Molech, who requires child sacrifice, that will be very important for understanding Ahaz's story later. Well, Solomon's son, who becomes king, is named Rehoboam, and uh, he was caught even deeper in the power of the office of king. He ruled so harshly over Israel that he broke the nation in half, and two Israels were formed. Ten of the original twelve tribes uh, created a northern kingdom. They called themselves Israel, with their capital in Samaria. Two tribes remained in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and they named their nation Judah and kept Jerusalem for their capital. Now, these two nations hated each other. The hate lasted for centuries. Even in the time of Jesus' ministry, nearly a thousand years later, these two nations, these two peoples, hate each other so much that it is considered scandalous to speak to each other or for a Jewish person to even walk through Samaritan lands. Now, what about the kings that followed Rehoboam? We're not going to go through them all. We don't have time to go through them all. But if you read through the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you will read the stories, excerpts, paragraphs about these different kings. And many of them, most of them, are described with the line, when it talks about a particular king, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. More of them than not do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'll offer you a little tip if you're curious about reading 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Both sets of books cover much of the same history of Israel and Judah. And they'll tell you when it's a king of Israel or a king of Judah, that northern kingdom, that southern kingdom. The books of Kings, first and second Kings, tend to give the blunt, unvarnished version of each king's reign. They tell us the really bad stuff. First and second Chronicles tend to highlight the good of each king and leave out the bad. And some of these kings, they're just so awful that Chronicles has nothing but to do but to report the bad. So that's the picture of the heritage of Ahaz's past. In many ways, the deck is stacked, stacked against him. His family tree has set him up to thirst for power, to manipulate to keep his control, to use every available opportunity for his advantage. Now, Ahaz 
in addition to that, has also chosen his path and done many things that are evil and detestable and shameful. Ahaz has decided to give power to his past. That's something we can be tempted to do when we have a past that we are either ashamed of or that haunts us, that something has been done to us. We have a choice to give power to that past or to give power to Christ. See, Ahaz, he let his heritage and his past mistakes dominate his life, his heart, his mind, and his approach to God. And if you feel like the past dominates you, that you always have to to have to pay for your past or live under its power, I want you to hear that Jesus, who is love himself, he can overpower and overcome your past. You may also have a past that's full of regrets. As as a pastor, I've met with many a people, men and women, who struggle with guilt over their past. And they'll say things like, Pastor, if you knew what I had done, you wouldn't like me. Or they'll say, there are no second chances for people like me. Or I've heard people say, no matter how much I hear that I'm forgiven, I cannot shake the guilt of my past. Maybe you can agree with one of those lines or a couple of them for yourself. I don't know what you have done or what has been done to you. I do know that each one of us, well, each one of us has been a bit in trouble. When we stand before the presence of God in His holiness at the seat of judgment, each one of us will realize how holy God is and how unholy we are, and we'll each feel the weight of our past. But your past doesn't have to have power over you. I was reading about the past this week, trying to find little stories, and just found this little exchange, a little quote here that I think is good. At least it gets us realizing how we sometimes give power to our past. It goes like this. One man said to his friend, Say, you look depressed. What are you thinking about? My future was the quick answer. Well, what makes it so hopeless? My past. Maybe you feel that way. I also want you to know, uh, and you need to. we need to say this out loud sometimes because... Well, he would like us to forget. You have an enemy. His name's Satan. And he wants you to fail. And he wants you to fall. And he wants you to give up. And nothing would delight him more than for you to live burdened by your past and live burdened by a single word, unworthy. He would love for you to believe that you are unworthy of forgiveness, unworthy of blessing, unworthy of life, unworthy of love, that you are unworthy. But unworthy is not the plan that God has for you. Now Ahaz, he was challenged by Isaiah to put his trust in the power of God instead of bowing down to the power of his past. I don't know what is in your past. Maybe it's something you're ashamed of. Maybe it's something you've done, something done to you. Most of us have a combination of this going on in our past. You might be furious with your family tree. You might feel like you'll never escape decisions that you have made. But the challenge is for you to put your trust not in your past, but in Jesus. And let Jesus overpower your past. Romans 8.28 tells us this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. 
The text does not say that the past is good. It does not say that the past is gone. It says that it is turned for the good. God doesn't erase your past. He gives it new meaning. He doesn't erase it. He gives it new meaning. And by believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and conquered death by raising from the grave, by declaring Jesus to be Lord over your life, you are giving him permission to overpower the sin of your past and give new meaning to your past. Will you let him do this? Let's take a look for a moment at Ahaz's present. Now, his present is literally in our past, so that's maybe the tricky part here. But let's take a moment, look at Ahaz's present. His past was stacked against him. Now you need to see what's happening to him when the message of Isaiah chapter 7 was first delivered. See, what had happened is Ahaz's father, Uzziah, he's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6. He he had died. It's a record of Uzziah's death and what happened to Isaiah when Uzziah, there's a mouthful, Isaiah, Uzziah. It's a record of what happened after Uzziah had died. I can't tell you if Isaiah chapter 7 recounts Ahaz just becoming king or if he's ruled for a few years. But the impression we are given when you read that chapter, is that regardless of how much time has passed from his father dying to him becoming king, that there was tension and struggle for Ahaz from day one. Isaiah chapter 7 begins like this. It says there in Isaiah 7 verse 1, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramallah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. When Ahaz becomes king, he is thrown into a situation of political turmoil. Two neighboring nations want to conquer Judah and get rid of Ahaz. They want to keep what's left for themselves. Who is it that wants to do this? Well, we're told it's the king of Aram and the king of Israel. I mentioned them a few minutes ago. Remember when Israel divided into two separate nations and the hate that boiled up between Judah and Israel? That's now coming to weigh on Ahaz. He's in a tough spot. His past has come back to get him. He's in a crisis, and now he has a choice to make. Will he trust in God, or will he trust in his own ability to overcome the situation? I'll tell you, Ahaz chooses poorly. He does what most of us would do. He exhausts his resources and he exhausts his abilities to get control of the situation. I think a lot of us do that. When we are stressed, when we're wanting to fix things, we exhaust all the resources we have. I got to get control of this. But I need you to hear this. Jesus, love himself. He can overcome your present and whatever problems you're facing in this moment right now. And this is what our text in Isaiah is asking of Ahaz. God desperately wants Ahaz to trust him. God wants King Ahaz to trust that he will take care of the problem in a way that only God can. And he offers Ahaz his choice of a sign. That's an amazing moment right there. I want to talk about that. Ahaz can choose anything. Verse 11 tells us that it could be from the deepest of depths to the highest of heights. But Ahaz turns down God. He doesn't want a sign. 
Why would he turn down a sign from God? Let me point this out. Something for you to think about. Signs encourage and amplify the faith you already have. Very rarely does a sign change your mind. Sometimes they do. But most of the time, especially in the Bible, when you read about the signs from God, and let's take the Gospels, for example, if someone is interested in Jesus and he performs a sign and they're already interested in them in him, they're energized by that sign. They're excited by it. They want to follow Jesus. But if someone's opposed to Jesus, like, say, a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and Jesus performs a sign, they're infuriated by it. The signs amplify the faith you have. And Ahaz doesn't want a sign to encourage his faith in God because he's already decided to refuse to put his faith in God. But God is trying to give Ahaz an opportunity to change direction. (sighs) But Ahaz, he doesn't trust that God can overcome his present problems. And you and I, we're faced with the same challenge. Will you trust that God can overcome your present challenges, or will you take matters into your own hands? That's the question we face every day. Now, let's take a moment and look at three things that Ahaz does to try to fix his current situation. Uh, And when he does these things, he actually seals his fate, his future. First thing that Ahaz does is he worships every god, that's little g, every false god, every little god that he can find. Uh, if you go to Second Kings chapter 16, you can read the account of the reign of King Ahaz. You can read his whole life right there, one chapter. And uh, near the beginning of it, in Second Kings 16.4, we're told that he offers sacrifices at every high place and under every spread tree that he can find. He's basically worshiping every possible god he can get his hands on. Think about that. If you were to offer a sacrifice under every single tree to a false god, that's a lot of worship. That's a lot of sacrifice. And none of that that Ahaz was doing was for God. That's the first thing he does, but it's not enough. In fact, Ahaz takes his worship to a very dark place. In 2 Kings chapter 16, if we just go back one verse, it tells us that Ahaz sacrificed his son to the fire. And who's the God he did that to? Well, that would be the God Molech, the Ammonite God that one of his forefathers, Solomon, worshipped. He gives power to his past. And by doing that, it devours Ahaz's future, quite literally. Ahaz has become so selfish that he has abandoned love for a twisted self-love, and it's no love at all, really. His desperation to secure his future destroys his son's future. The Bible goes on in several places to talk about um, sacrifice. God is very much against this sort of sacrifice. So you have Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21 says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. For you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Jeremiah 32, we won't go there, but Israel is judged because they are sacrificing their children to Molech. 
I challenge you today, if you have children, (laughs) I don't think any of us say, hey, we're going to go sacrifice them to Molech. But a lot of times, without even realizing it, we sacrifice our children, whether it's for our pleasure, for our security, for our egos. But when we do that, love fails at every level. The third and final thing that Ahaz does is that he goes to the Assyrians. He goes to them instead of God, and he wants to form an allegiance with them so that they will go and conquer those two other kings that want to take his kingdom from him. And they do. We have records from Tiglath-Pileser, who recounts how Israel or Judah became a tributary nation to the Assyrians. Here's the thing that Ahaz probably wasn't counting on. Judah became a tributary nation for over a hundred years to the Assyrians until really the Babylon Babylonians come in and conquer them. So they are no longer free. They have to give their very best to Assyria. And so Ahaz, in an attempt to keep his power, gives it away. And even beyond that, Ahaz tries to win more favor from the Assyrians by worshiping their gods. He has a copy of their god made, and he places it in God's temple in Jerusalem. He profanes the holy temple. Ahaz could have chosen to trust God, but instead he brought unbelievable suffering upon himself, his future family, by his actions. Let's talk about Ahaz's future for a moment here. When Ahaz rejected God and when he sacrificed his son to save himself, he sealed his future. He sets the course of his family's future. Ahaz, he'll eventually have a grandson. Uh, There's a good king in between, but he has a grandson named Manasseh. And Manasseh, too, will offer his son as a sacrifice. And the Bible describes his reign in this way, that he shed enough innocent blood to fill Jerusalem from end to end. Manasseh is plagued by some of the same problems that Ahaz is. But it didn't have to be that way. Not for Manasseh. It didn't have to be that way for Ahaz. Because Jesus, love himself, can open your future to victory. Past, present, they may be something that you're ashamed of, something that you feel like you can't escape, but every moment beyond this one can be different. This is why Ahaz's story has everything to do with Christmas. This is a story about love failed and love triumphant. Ahaz shows us love failed. And he shows us love that is selfish and self-serving. And his climax is when he sacrifices his own son. Ahaz shows us it's a false love that ruins the future. And it's no love at all. And the contrast is sharp. Because Ahaz acts completely selfishly. He takes the life of his son. He destroys his son's future. God shows us love triumphant in his son, Jesus Christ. While Ahaz wants to save his own skin, Jesus comes to save the world from sin. Ahaz acts in selfishness. Jesus acts selflessly. Ahaz doesn't trust God, and Jesus trusts the Heavenly Father completely. Ahaz takes his child's life, 
And Jesus offers his own life willingly for you. I want to read for you John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. And here's Jesus speaking. And he's talking about how he is not having his life taken from him. He's willingly laying it down. It says, this reason, the reason my father loves me is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. Ahaz takes life. Jesus gives it. It's all about Christmas. Isaiah chapter 7, it is Christmas. In this story, we see the problem of sin on display. We see love failed and a king taking the life of his son selfishly. But we're also introduced to Emmanuel, God with us, who is Jesus, the King of Kings. And he lays down his life to change your future forever. This story offers hope, peace, and joy in the form of love. I want to close with a story written by J. Alistair Brown. And it goes like this. Walking through a park, I passed a massive oak tree. A vine had grown up along its trunk. The vine started small. Nothing to bother about. But over the years, the vine had gotten taller and taller. By the time I passed, the entire lower half of the tree was covered by the vine's creepers. The mass of tiny feelers was so thick that the tree looked as though it had innumerable bird's nests in it. Now the tree was in danger. This huge, solid oak was quite literally being taken over. The life was being squeezed from it. But the gardeners in the park had seen the danger. They had taken a saw and severed the trunk of the vine. One neat cut across the middle. The tangled mass of the vine's branches, they still clung to the oak. But the vine was now dead. That would gradually become plain as weeks passed and the creepers began to die and fall away from the tree. How easy it is for sin, which begins so small and seemingly insignificant, to grow until it is a strangling grip on our lives. And yet Christ's death has cut the power of sin. Yes, the creepers of of sin still cling and have some effect, but sin's power is severed by Christ, and gradually sin's grip dries up and falls away. I want to encourage you. If you have not already, put your trust in Jesus. He is love triumphant. He can give new meaning to your past. He can overcome the choking vines of your present and open your future to victory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, who is love himself, that by his triumph of love, our past, our present, and our future can be rewritten and given new meaning. Lord, help each of us to be a people who reject selfish ways and live under the power of Jesus, who is love triumphant. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.